no, very slow reader. I don't know, know if notorious slow, but um, <laughs> yeah, like it's kind what of people say about you behind your back. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's difficult because it's just like you know, you meet people. You, or actually, you don't even meet people. You see people on like Instagram and stuff, and they're like, "I've read five books this week," or "I've read 10. Um, and they'll be like, you know, they're not they're your sort of business brained idiots that are like, oh yeah, and the, one of those books was like the four hour work week and stuff. It's like, <laughs> yeah. they'll actually kind of say that like, you know, <laughs> that doesn't oh, count. yeah, that doesn't, we, like, if you're reading like a fucking business inspo book, that doesn't count. But like, they'll kind of be like, yeah, and I like, I read Dostoevsky in like a week and I'm like, what? H- how? <laughs> okay, um, you got to remember who's saying that they are lying. simply not telling the truth yeah maybe but also you know it's that thing where it's just like you know I've, yeah we've been doing this show for what two years now but i still believe everything on the internet is real so <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, I go through like i go through periods where like i'll read a lot in like a really short period of time so like mm. you know i might read like four or five books in like a week or two but then like i'll read nothing for like a month because mm. I'm just so like exhausted from all the reading that I've done. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Obviously, I'll be reading articles and internet shit, but like you know, not books. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, interesting yeah, in yeah. there. Yeah, I, I'd really want to do an episode on like just reading generally at some point, like in the future. Um, book talk and book. Yes, Instagram, yeah. yeah. Like, we, whatever like, we've that's been called. like we've been we've been saying that we need to do a, a bookstagram episode for like such a long yeah. time. It's just like a question. It's just like a question of like how to like how to like approach it carefully. Cause like the last time we tried to even like mention it, Hussein got accused of being a misogynist. So <laughs> Did I? Maybe. Yeah. I'm not surprised. I just genuinely don't like oh you know it was like a fandom said, related said, yeah. No, you said something about like the like kind of this like the particular um aesthetics like typical to like book posting Instagram accounts. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. And yeah, and like, and you someone really did got... like a cozy post of like a little life, and I was just like, yeah, and you have you read that, the book? And you thought like, that was yeah. funny because, <laughs> and you're right, it is like it is funny, and um, but like you know, I don't like I don't mind like I don't mind being like your like your buffer uh, against any criticism, like I'll Thank be your you, yeah. I'll be your misogyny shield because I completely everyone agree with you. Yeah. <laughs> very lucky to have one of it. Hello and welcome to this episode of 10,000 Posts, a show about how everything is posting. My name is Hussein, you can follow me at hkismani on twitter.com. My name is Phoebe, you can follow me on twitter at prhroy. Um, and this is a free episode of 10,000 Posts. If you are interested in listening to more content, including like really good interviews, uh, hangouts with our friends, good movie reviews and stuff, there's lots of good stuff on our Patreon. You can uh, subscribe for five bucks a month, patreon.com forward slash 10k post podcast. Uh, all your support goes into helping us do this show uh, twice a week. Uh, something that we enjoy doing, but also does uh, it is it is work, and we would you know, and uh, it's uh, uh, it's nice to sort of be kind of get your little treats for that. Um, now, look, if we were like, but if we if we were in like a, you know maybe just even a few years ago or like a, you know a, a decade ago, uh, we would be rewarded not with like five dollar treats, uh, which I don't know what that could get you in like a Seven Eleven or whatever now. But, you know, remember those days when, like, you would get, like, a car and stuff? Is that a thing? Oh, oh, a car? Okay, I'm sort of just, like, assuming based (laughs) on the fact that I've never... But, you know, like, you know, look, I've seen on TV shows that, like, you know, uh, when someone got a promotion for their, like, office job, they'd be like, yeah, we'll give you, like, a golden handshake, which includes, like, this really cool, like, Maserati or whatever. Mm, Like, like, like like a company car. 
Yes. Yeah. Right. We would have company cars, but the problem is that we can't afford company cars and we shouldn't want company cars, but mostly we can't afford company cars. This is a really good intro to the guest that we this have is, today. I'm trying so hard. I'm trying so hard. To do this. We have a very special guest on, but also I thought you were talking about Oprah giving away cars. To be honest, yeah, that's true. I, mean, <laughs> I thought you, you meant uh, like a hot, like a kind of like a Hot Wheel toy car that you can get in the shop who gets a, as like who gets a little a hot treat, wheel. as like a little treat in your little Happy Meal. You couldn't yeah, even exactly. buy like a Hot Meal. <laughs> you couldn't even buy like a Hot Wheels like car with like five dollars. I don't think not anymore. Um, but in no, the past, I, I bought an action figure recently as a joke gift for somebody, and I was mm-hmm. like, "How are action figures like forty or fifty dollars now? Uh-huh. This takes no sense." What? Yeah, is that yeah. how yeah. much they are? <laughs> yeah, is that nerd- much they are here? <laughs> well, I think it's like nerd culture and stuff. Anyway, look for, oh, yeah. for people who are like whose ears are very good. Uh, you will you have heard the the tones of a friend of the show, Paris Marx, who has come back <laughs> on the show to hang out with us and to uh and to ask and to answer the very important question. Was it true that you could get like company cars were much more common back in the day, or is this stuff I just got from TV shows? Um, I think yes, but maybe I'm also assuming that based on TV shows as well. <laughs> is this like <laughs> I this feel one, like that's yeah. been downsized, you know? I feel, yeah, like maybe yeah, that was also just like I don't know, some kind of like idealist vision of like you know mm. the kind of. 1950s to 70s like company man and like what that would look like i don't know yeah so. well i think like yeah the reason why i i sort of said that partly because i did want to like just try do the segue as smoothly as i could because we are we are going to talk about your very good book which you mentioned when you first came on i think it was like in the sort of like finishing editing stages and now it's out and it's very very good it's called road to nowhere what silicon valley gets wrong about the future of transportation uh, you can get back from verso books and that link will be in the show notes um yeah, I, and I, I don't know. I was just, I really, I was just trying to think at this point, like, were company cars like an actual sort of common thing? Was it something that was more common in the States where like driving, I guess, is much more like a part of life in universe? But I guess like it also happens over here as well. So I don't know. Does anyone still get company cars anymore? I would like to find out that question, uh, find out the answer to that question. I feel like it still would have been like an executive level thing, right? So it still would have been pretty limited even if it was more common in the past mm-hmm. but i feel like now like it would probably only be like the top top executives who get something like that but you know i've never been in that position so i'm not super certain yeah <laughs> yeah well look one day hope well one day maybe we'll be able to like potentially and theoretically be able to like one of us will get you know a maserati but uh seems yeah. unlikely um but look we are when i think when we talk about like cars and uh conversations about like transportation uh and the future of it we obviously there's one guy that kind of keeps showing up unfortunately uh little guy uh, you may know him his name is elon musk um who's that again remind me yeah you know fairly like niche character (laughs) he sort of had to be there in the moment to truly understand him um no elon's been Uh, doing stuff okay um and you know while i was sort of writing the notes for this episode i sort of remembered like just in the back of my mind, they're like, oh, Elon's still like technically trying to buy Twitter. Remember that? Like, remember when that was like the biggest thing? I think thing he's and technically he trying to not buy Twitter right yeah. now. Actually. And <laughs> yeah. So like the last update I think we did was a very brief like, yeah, he's now trying to like renege from the deal, renege from the deal. But like, he doesn't really know how to like do so. Um, Twitter have, I, and I'm, you know, again, I, I'm not like a legal brain. I especially don't know what kind of like uh competition law in the u.s is currently like like so uh apologies if i sort of butcher like the specifics of it but you know when he first sort of made the announcement so he owns i think nine percent of twitter at the moment 
when he made the announcement that he was going to like buy the whole thing, there was like this big controversy over like, what is he going to do with Twitter? And like, you know, the fact that he's sort of friends with a lot of these kind of like right wing weirdos and sickos and that his politics is very much rooted in that kind of like what is essentially like an emerging emerging like techno fascist movement. Um, you know, what was that? What is that going to mean for like one of the biggest platforms online and one that we're sort of all kind of integrated to in some form? Um, more recently, he's been trying to get out of it. Um, and he tried to get out of it first by claiming that Twitter had like overstate or understated its bot problem and uh, the number of like autonomous like accounts that were um, just like posting spam and everything. Bearing in mind that like both the bots and the spam stuff have been very crucial to like the growth of tesla and the growth of his projects and the growth of him as a personality in the sense for like tweets that he does can like literally move markets um so he's still trying to sort of go with that there was a whistleblower a twitter whistleblower that came out a couple of weeks ago um called peter zatko who like among the other sort of uh among the other revelations that he uh that he told the media he kind of agreed with Musk in the sense, like, by saying, but yeah, Twitter definitely has like this bot problem, but it just like is kind of underselling to investors. But that hasn't really seemed to help Musk's case out right now. Um, and next month, I think there's going to be like a further decision as to like whether the sale needs to go ahead or not. Um, and if it does go ahead, he's going to be paying for Twitter way above the rate that he could have done <laughs> you know true true business mindset like ultimately <laughs> bear in mind that all this this play was basically done to try own the libs and impress tim paul those are the only <laughs> reasons why he's doing this thing um and i find that incredibly funny but the reason why i bring this up is i think there's like something quite interesting going on in the sense that it sort of explains like what i kind of think is the musk playbook so he isn't really talking about twitter very much these days like when he's not talking about like eugenics or talking about like forced birthing, like for his like Mars projects or whatever, he is now like trying to, well, I don't know whether he's trying to distract, but he's at least sort of trying to focus on other projects. So he's doing like his like rocket shit. He is, uh, I think like next week or in the next couple of weeks, he's set to unveil like the Tesla, like auto, like uh, automaton. I don't know what it's called, but like that thing where, you know, it was supposed to sort of be like a humanoid robot and the first pre presentation of it was just a guy in a morph suit who pretended to be a robot. I find that incredibly funny. Mm. Um, <laughs> so he's just trying, yeah, he's trying to just like now just present that he is too busy with other projects and he's too busy like trying to make Tesla and SpaceX big things. So like the Twitter stuff is really more of a side issue. I guess as like a starting point, um, uh, Paris, I know that you said that you didn't really know too much about the specifics of this, but I wondered whether like there are any kind of whether there's stuff that Elon's doing right now that seems familiar to you in relation to like all the stuff that's going on with well, you know, with all the stuff regarding like Tesla and crucially um, with hype. So before I read out the tweet, uh, yeah, just I just I just wanted to know like is this kind of what's Elon doing right now and like is this sort of familiar to other things he's been doing when it's come to like his ventures that have not seemed to be bearing fruit. Yeah, I, I think it's a really interesting question. And, you know, I think the Twitter thing in general, like I feel like where I've kind of lost the plot with it is like, what was his real kind of initial motivation, right? Mm. I've kind of justified it in the sense of, you know, Twitter is a platform that's very beneficial to him in letting him kind of, you know, drive crypto prices or share prices or or whatnot, and also kind of engage with his with his cult and his his fan base. Um, and so that's really beneficial to him to have that platform. And I guess the risk of it changing or, or something happening to it um, would be a threat to him and his kind of 
financial success to a certain degree. Mm. Um, but then like, you know, obviously he is a terrible deal maker. I don't know. Maybe he read like the art of the deal by Donald Trump or something like that. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, he, 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 you know, obviously bought this company at too high of a price more than it was worth. Um, even though, you know, it was worth more during the, the pandemic when a lot of the tech stocks were inflated. Um, but then of course, basically right after he signs the deal, all of the tech share prices start to crash, including Tesla's price, which a lot of his fortune is tied up in. Um, and so that I think leaves him with less kind of capital to make a deal like this and to actually be able to follow through on it. And even though he waived due diligence, um, that is why all of a sudden he's trying to find some reason to extricate himself from this deal to ensure mm -hmm. that he doesn't have to buy it um, because it would be much more difficult for him to follow through on that could also have consequences for Tesla if he has to sell more Tesla stock, things like that, right? Um, and so just in terms of, you know, if this kind of distraction that he's engaging with right now is par for the course, um, I would say it is. And, and what comes to mind for me is um, Edward Niedermeyer wrote this book, Ludicrous, looking at the history of Tesla. And one of the things that he outlines in that book is that it's around 2014, I believe, when Elon Musk really makes the transition from, you know, Tesla is this company that's going to make electric cars and we're going to make an expensive electric car and that's going to be able to fund a cheaper one and a cheaper one and a cheaper one. And around 2014 is when he's seeing that this really isn't working out. Um, you know, it's becoming more expensive to create these vehicles than he expected, in part because of um, the way that he's been interfering in design processes, making cars that are more expensive to make than they, they should be for the price that they're selling um, because of particular aesthetics that he that he wants with the vehicles. And so then he starts to make these kind of um, promises that he can't follow through on things like battery swapping in the vehicles or autonomous vehicles or just a whole load of other things that he said over the years and those big ideas certainly help to drive the share price but it means that then he's kind of on um on a hamster wheel where he has to keep coming up with a new kind of massive idea that's going to drive investor interest even as he can never kind of fulfill the old ones and you do wonder like at what point people finally wake up and say like he's never going to fulfill any of these things. Like he's just totally full of shit. But right. so many of these people have bought into the company, including retail investors like his cult, that they need to keep kind of pumping it up or else mm. they are going to take huge losses too. Yeah. Sure. So, so, it's, so it's almost like a kind of, like a kind of game of, like, sort of complicated game of financial chicken. Yeah. <laughs> that he's playing. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Because so, I, I had the yeah. I had the idea that the original that the original idea behind like that kind of like big ticket purchase was that it would that by like kind of by leveraging the the Tesla stocks that it would like protect him from a kind of another drop. I got the, mm -hmm. I got the idea that that's like bearing in mind that I know very very little about how like finance works. Which is why I'm a podcaster and, yeah. <laughs> and don't and don't and don't work in finance. But what I think is so, um, what I think is so interesting about this, and I say I think so interesting, so interesting is probably doing a bit of heavy lifting there. This is more a kind of huh, observation. Is that just all of it is just so teenage to me? Mm. Um, it just it just all it reminds me of is. 
um, when I was a when I was a teenager, I insisted that I was going to get this um, this particular piercing that I didn't particularly want, but I thought it would make me sound hard. Um, <laughs> and I went on about it enough that someone bet me that I wouldn't do it, and so then I had to go ahead and do it, and it was really unpleasant and painful. And that's kind of what it feels like, like right down to the <laughs> why are you. St- still asking me about that i'm doing like other projects why are you so obsessed with me like it's it's just it's a very very interesting way of presenting yourself as a kind of semi-serious business figure i think like he's i mean he's made a he's made a category error in the fact that he posts literally everything that he thinks about and everything that comes into his head <laughs> and everything that he's everything that he everything that he does everything that he thinks he just he he's just got to put he's just got to put it out there he's just a absolute kind of you know churning post machine and so when he starts going around saying well i didn't realize how diff- how like what an issue the bot problem was then you can point to several tweets from way before the deal was even floated where he is going on and on about the bots on twitter so he can't even he can't even like kind of sincerely put across that he that he has a particular view about about bots on Twitter. But for some reason they're like I mean, like you said, like where does it where does the road run out? It doesn't it doesn't seem to have any material effect on him. Like, yeah, it's true he might end up having to buy Twitter for like well, well over the odds. But when you are dealing with the kind of sums that he's dealing with, at what point does this just not matter to you? Like it's like an it's like an annoyance rather than rather than a catastrophe. And I just wonder if like I wonder if so much of it is is based on not just like his kind of cult of personality that he has built up, but this idea of Silicon Valley and like the kind of new whiz kids mm. of tech being like the only option for how to like frame a better world and like that's 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 all that's all we had that's all we've had for the last 20 years because governments won't do it um the media won't won't encourage governments to do it because it's all kind of they're all sort of like tied in sort of tied in together so someone has to and these are the people that kind of put themselves forward as being the people who are going to do it and i had a really interesting observation um, the other day, uh, which is that people, people on the left, um, people anywhere on the left should seriously rethink their use of the word progressive, because actually mm. in order to, uh, in order to kind of sustain any kind of life on earth, progress is, is actually not what, what is, ne- what is needed, um, particularly, particularly technological <laughs> progress or at least certainly technological progress in the specific areas that we're talking about like obviously like medical technology progress is like like a good thing but yet this is never we talked about this with um with uh jathan from this machine kills it's never medical advances that people go on about ever it's always cars transportation uh, like that like uh, like surveillance tech, right? Surveil- totally. Surveillance, yeah. yeah, surveillance tech, green energy that like things. relies on this like absolutely like like mm. 
obscene mineral supply chain, et cetera, et cetera. That, that's, that's, all that, that's all that it is. And we've been trained to kind of t- to think this way. We've been trained to, to think that, uh, that the actual left-wing framing is this kind of Peter Thielism of just like constant innovation, like innovation beyond innovation beyond society and innovation beyond yeah. nature. And we should be really careful about well, using this term without thinking about what it means. And I thought it was really interesting. So actually, this is a really interesting point to hinge the tweet that I've got on um, because we are the return of, uh, remember, uh, remember like the Hyperloop? Remember when that was, I, I keep forgetting that Hyperloop is apparently still a thing in flux. Um, but this was a tweet that they Elon haven't proposed did. one from like London to Manchester or something. <laughs> well, you know, we have a new prime minister who I think does enjoy entertaining the ideal of those kinds of things. Like she is very much someone who like is impressed by the Elon Musk's of the world. Yeah. Um, so I wouldn't be surprised if that is kind of like a serious policy proposal or at least something akin to that is like proposed fairly soon. Mm. Um, but the tweet that I've got in mind in Paris, like you actually like uh, did a very interesting thread uh, on it. And maybe we can like talk about that when I read it out. Sure. And the reason why I'm stalling is because this guy's last name is really scaring me. I don't know yeah. how to pronounce it properly. So I'm going to try really hard. Um, this is from a guy, like the original tweet was from a guy called Eric Br- uh, Brynolfsson. It might be, I'm sorry if I've butchered that. It's just like, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I don't have it. Inf- I try to help you, but I don't have it in front Brynolf- of me right we're now. Gonna, we're going to call him Eric. We're going to call him Big Eric. Uh, it's Scandinavian. It looks like it's Eric Brynolfsson. Uh, okay. Big Eric writes, Boston to NYC could be one hour frequent train ride from downtown to downtown. People would routinely go, go to lunch in each other's cities, do some business, be back home by dinner. The economic value unleashed would be staggering. To which Elon Musk replies, and bear in mind that this tweet isn't like, this hasn't got like a ton of, you know, uh, what you call it, like a ton of attention. Um, yeah, this Elon is part Musk of a thread seems, yeah. as well where he was arguing yeah. for high speed rail, right? E- Elon Musk replies in the same, in this, like, such a like Musk response where he just goes in this like matter of fact state term, Hyperloop could do that trip in less than half an hour. Um, well, I'm sure it could. I'm sure it could do it in like 20 minutes or like, you know, 15 minutes for that matter. If it existed, the problem is Hyperloop doesn't exist and it's not even close to existing. So, I guess for like people who who either forgot or memory hold Hyperloop or just have this is the first time they've sort of heard about it. Uh, Paris, what what is Hyperloop and why has Elon been talking about this for like what seems to be at least a decade at this point? Yeah, it, it's a good question. And one of the funny responses that I saw to it was, why Hyperloop? Teleportation would be instant, right? Why should, why should we wait for that? <laughs> yeah, Because they're equal <laughs> fantasies, right? Like they're not real. Um, yeah. yeah, so Hyperloop comes around, uh, I believe Elon Musk first mentions it in 2012. So it's a decade ago. Um, and then he really puts out the white paper in 2013. And the idea is that this is this kind of vacuum tube train-like transportation system that will be super cheap to build, that will go incredibly fast. Um, you know, it, it's all great stuff and no downsides, right? As is always the, the promise <laughs> in the case with the tech industry. Of course, yeah. um, and so this emerges in this moment because obviously Elon Musk is based in California. He's an automaker. Um, and he's seeing that the government in California is moving forward with a plan to build a high-speed rail system from San Francisco to LA that would then extend to some other cities beyond those. Um, and he is very opposed to that because he sees high-speed rail as an antiquated technology, trains, mm. um, 
And we should actually be thinking about what the future of transportation should be. And so he puts forward this idea of the Hyperloop. Um, that is something that we should that that the government should be pursuing or that private companies should be pursuing instead of high speed rail um, because he wants to see and he admits this to his biographer um, in his uh, in the biography that's written by Ashley Vance. I can't. It's called Elon Musk, but it, it's uh, it's like the the quest for a fantastic future or something like that. It's called um, like the subtitle. Um, but in, in the book, you know, Vance writes that Elon Musk admitted to him in emails that. He put this forward. He had no intention to build it, to be clear. He just put this like white paper out into the world and said, this is the kind of thing we should be doing instead of high-speed rail. And he admitted that his goal was to see the California high-speed rail project canceled because he did not want to see it built. Uh, and so essentially, you know, and I, I feel like this is a pattern with Elon Musk, is that, you know, he puts forward these ideas for transportation. Um, and the real goal is to distract from real solutions that can actually mm. change how people move today to get people out of cars and instead to delay it with fantasies um, that don't exist, that are decades away, if ever realizable, um, so that, you know, real solutions aren't built and people mm. keep being stuck. Yeah. Did either of you see the th see the thing? This is just what this makes me think of um, about this, like this kind of known grift that is going on in like academic particle physics. That uh, like that people, I've, yeah. Is this not is this not true? Because if it's not true, I won't say it. It's just I just <laughs> I just really like it. I just think it's really funny. I think I know what you're talking about. But please elaborate. I think um, this is quite a funny bit generally. It's 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 genuinely very funny. But so basically, somebody who works in who works in academic particle physics said that it's like a kind of known thing that if you are, that if you want to get research funding into whatever it was whatever it is you want to be doing in your kind of specific area of particle physics, the best thing to do is to invent a particle and say you have to go looking for it. <laughs> because there's like there's there's like, there's no kind of like punishment or like downside mm. for like failing to find a particle because it's particle physics like it's really hard like there are god knows how many particles in the known universe if you can't find it that's no reflection on you as a scientist but it's like a kind of no it's like a kind of known <laughs> thing in like and like if this is like if this is like not true and this is just like a really unfair accounting of like what it's like in particle physics academia, then please do correct me. But I just think it's really, really funny. And it's sort of what it makes me think of. Like so instead of being like, okay, so how about we uh reimagine um, say, urban planning to be, you know, far less antisocial, far less connected, um, uh, with cars, but less reliant on cars. Yeah, no. But what about what about my magic wizard train? It's in a big circle. It's like a scholastic, but massive. What about that? <laughs> yeah, okay. But how about how about stuff that like exists and we can do? What about magic carpets? I'm going to put a lot <laughs> of money into developing magic carpets, um, mm. and that's just what it just what it makes me think of. He's like they are like. And it's and it's being like completely permitted this like this endless search for a particle that doesn't exist. Yeah, yeah. I I don't know if your particle physics example is true, but I believe it. It sounds it sounds <laughs> yeah, true. It I will say though, well. it was fascinating to me. Like this biography of Elon Musk was published back in two thousand fourteen. It was fourteen or fifteen when it first came out. Right. Many people have read 
this book where Elon Musk admits that he wanted to see the California high-speed rail project canceled, and that's why he put forward mm. Hyperloop. Um, but for some reason, it feels like no one ever noticed it or picked up on it. Um, mm. Because obviously, I write about it in the book, but I also mentioned it in uh, an interview with Gizmodo and a, a Time Magazine article that I wrote, and they both came out around the same time. And like they blew up as though people had never heard yeah. of, of this before. And I was like, it, it was fascinating to me because to me, I kind of rationalized it as though this book comes out in 2014, 15. It's a moment when, you know, the cult of Musk is still like mm. rising, right? His, his mm. kind of profile, the kind of adoration of him. But now we're in a moment where I feel like people are turning on Musk. And so it's a moment when people are more receptive to this kind of information about his history. Mm. I wonder if it's also, so during that time is also kind of like, you know, again, this is all just like anecdotal. Um, but I think around like 2015 was probably the first time I used Uber and mm. it was around about the time when like rideshare just sort of come into this country and like, you know, lo you know, lots of kind of parts of the city, which are now, you know, so where I live, like, you know, there are lots of Uber drivers now, um, in quite like a working class area of Southeast London, but like back in the day, like there were no, to, to use Uber and stuff, you would have to sort of go into the city. So it was like a very, very novel thing. And I wonder whether like the idea that you know, you like rideshare was going to be the future or that like you didn't need to sort of like take tubes and buses and, you know, public transport. And it, like in a city that's like actually kind of quite good for public transport. It was so I, I remember like during that time, people kind of saying that, oh, you know, using Uber is actually like so much cheaper and so much faster to kind of get around and do mm -hmm. stuff. You know, I don't have to wait for buses and like overground trains and everything. So I think maybe there was some optimism around this idea of like not alternate transport, but just like these sort of, you know, these types of kind of apps are presenting themselves to be alternate transport and Musk is kind of really spearheading or at least sort of like at the forefront of that. And you're right, it touches into that whole idea of like tech guys still sort of being seen as kind of benevolent, uh, you know, a apolitical geniuses that are like are kind of the epitome of efficiency and are benefiting from like a post-recession economy, which kind of allows them to present themselves as being like technological geniuses. Mm -hmm. And now we've kind of gotten to this stage where like, you know, the, the the veil isn't completely off, but it's certainly slipping. People are becoming like a lot less optimistic. And I think, you know, even and then also as prices go up as well, it's like, oh, actually, like Uber isn't really that efficient or useful yeah. and it can be more problematic. And it ironically is faster to take the train back home now and stuff. So, yeah, I wonder whether it kind of like fits into that, like, cult, like. Sort of That's because they built a new line just for you. They though, did, right? and it's so good. <laughs> and I wrote it this morning, and it was great. And I'm looking forward to writing to it back. But like, yeah, ultimately, <laughs> really, really, yes. Like, f like fundamentally, yes. Like, um. But I've just, you know, again, anecdotal. But even like speaking to people that I know, um, who are basically saying that, like, yeah, to take an Uber out of like the city into the suburbs and stuff, like, you may as well get a taxi, and it's basically the same thing. And yeah. like, you'll kind of be like marginally safe, you know, safer doing. I, I, again, like, I don't like make assumptions and stuff, but it's more about like that kind of the the lack of kind of like rose tinted glasses around these services. Even the even like the new ones that are coming out, you know, like your your whole like you know, uh, gorillas grocery delivery services and everything. Um, there just seems to be like a lot less kind of like non manufactured optimism around these things that like oh this stuff makes our life better because. I think objectively, it's very obvious that these things don't. Yeah, no, I completely agree. I think it was much easier to kind of buy into these promises in 2014, 2015, before you really start to like clearly see 
the impact of these ideas, how they're, mm-hmm. you know, in many of them are not kind of following through on the promises that they're making. Um, you know, especially now as we see Uber's prices rising, but we've had stories about, you know, their treatment of workers for a long time, you know, how yeah. self-driving cars haven't arrived, how, you know, the idea of flying cars were, was, a, was a joke, um, in my opinion. Um, you know, micromobility, I think, had, had has a lot of issues, the dockless bike and scooter services. Um, you know, boring company was supposed to like revolutionize, you know, urban transportation in, in North America with all these tunnels under under the roads for your cars to go yeah. in. And, and it, know, just, that and was it was a, a company that was designed just to give Joe Rogan a flamethrower. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, f- I, f- I feel like a lot of people acted brand new about not just Uber, but like uh, Gorillas, the new, the, it's not, it's new to this country anyway, uh, the grocery delivery app. When, particularly when there was a kind of push amongst people who were doing these jobs to to kind of to organize um and i feel like a lot of people were like oh oh so like the reason this is cheap is because there is a person on the other end of it working in this very precarized and underpaid way who is functionally operating as like a service class for me and other middle class people like me, that's oh, oh, that's not great, is it? And it's like, what did what did you imagine? How do you think things <laughs> yeah. are cheap? How do you think things are personally inexpensive? And like I've said, and I've said this before, I've said this before on the show, and I'll say it again. It's just it's a very very successful transplant uh, transplantation of the utter thoughtlessness about. Uh, in the global north about supply chains in the global south but it has been transplanted onto onto your doorstep Um, and like at least part of that is down I believe is down to um, the demographic character of most people who are like working like working for apps Mm. I think people basically uh, I don't think they would acknowledge this I don't think they would cop to this I don't even think that they would realize that they're thinking it but I think somewhere they think it's okay for black and brown people to basically earn very little in order to purchase my convenience um and um i think it's very interesting that people like now are going like yeah but how can someone deliver your groceries in 10 minutes without like putting themselves at risk in the traffic Mm -hmm. without um being under some like kind of terrible target system like how are they actually doing that and it's just a bit like duh come on how do you I, think? I feel like, how do you think they're doing it, Megamind? <laughs> yeah, I, I feel like there are still like a lot of people who don't want to think about it, like who kind of yeah. try to consciously not think about it. And yeah. it's interesting to me because we're talking about 2014, 15, and there's a piece that has always stuck with me since I read it in 2015 um, that Lauren Smiley wrote called "The Shut In Economy," and she basically talks about how you know I, I was talking to her about the piece, and she told me that you know she was living outside of San Francisco for a while, mm. and then she moved back into the city, and she was like, all of a sudden, it seemed like everything had changed because these gig services had arrived, and obviously mm. they kind of took over in San Francisco before other places because you know, they were services that were designed to serve the needs of tech workers and then sold to everybody else. Mm -hmm. Um, And she was like, you know, you could very clearly see how it was kind of like dividing the city between the served and the servants, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And sure, these services allowed a few more, like a slightly larger percentage of the population to become the served instead of the servants. Mm -hmm. Um, But 
it also expanded the kind of servant class, especially as it took advantage of the post 2008 kind of precarity and, and, you know, the people who have been laid off and never found better jobs. And then, you know, we slowly kind of saw that expand to other parts of the world. And then you really saw it during the pandemic, like, Mm -hmm. you know, become very clear, right? There were a lot of people who were staying home and taking advantage of these services. And then, you know, we talked about how everyone was locked down and staying home and what have you. But then there were still a lot of workers who were out delivering all of those, you know, kind of food and, and all those sorts of things. And for a while, right, they were the celebrated essential workers. And now I feel like we've very quickly gone back to just seeing them as like dirt, you know. Yeah, and I think just as those like as those services sort of expand, and crucially, I think what we'll see as the economy continues to decline and more people are sort of forced to do those services, um, I think that divide is probably very likely to become a lot harsher, um, and a lot more like sort of divide. And I think like yeah, the the actual splits between like the divide, like the kind of served and the the servers, are just going to become a lot. They'll become a lot more entrenched than like maybe. You know, because I think like one of the one of the things to work, like worth noting about at least like when these services were around in 2014, like when they kind of first became popular internationally, was like the marketing around it was still very much like, you know, oh, this is just like you know extra work, you know, the side hustle type of stuff. You know, if you want to save up for, you know, I remember ads for like these types of services where you know the protagonist would like take up you know a, a rideshare job not to pay their rent but to like afford like a special treat or like you know their kind of husband or their you know loved one and whatever they were yep. sort of deemed as like the things that you do just you do to like afford your treats and stuff whereas i think now it's un- unavoidable to basically say that yeah most people are doing this because if they don't then they're not going to be able to keep their lights on or they're not going to be able to pay their rent and all those things like stuff that is far less easy to market mm. um and it comes both as a part of like that expansion and like this sort of takes me into a lot of the stuff that you've written in your book that goes beyond Tesla, when which much more about like where the automotive industry sort of fits in in terms of not necessarily creating problems and then sol- trying to solve them to present their worth, but more about, I think actually it kind of is worse than that because they're not really solving any of the problems they create. They're still there. It's more like the automo- like automobiles um, and vehicles are actually, well, the, the impression that I got when I was reading your book is like, but the cars themselves are actually not as much of a problem as the technology that is used um, to sort of justify their existence. Mm. Um, so I wondered, like, maybe just could do, whether you could sort of give us an overview about the book and the arguments that, like, you make, and particularly, I guess, like how the problem around like how tech companies think about transportation really like goes beyond just what Elon Musk and Tesla um, kind of conceive of. Yeah, no, I, I think it's a really good question. Um, and, you know, I think that there are a few pieces to it to kind of dig into, right? And and I think the first thing I would say is like, you know, if we think about the past decade or so and what the, the tech industry has told us or promised us, they said that they were really going to disrupt the way that we get around, right? And that that mm-hmm. disruption was going to be in service of solving a lot of the problems that exist in the transportation system, in large part because of the over-reliance on automobiles, right? The degree to which many people have to drive in order to get anywhere they want to go. And certainly that's, you know, much more the case in North America than Europe. But I feel like, you know, in North America, we kind of underplay the degree to which there's still reliance on automobiles in in Europe as well. Um, because people over here like to look at the center of the city and be like, oh, look, they have good transit systems, so nobody drives, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, yeah. But but yeah, so 
you know, I, I obviously think that that is wrong, right? In, in large part, because if you look at how people still get around today, it hasn't changed a lot as a result of these supposed technological interventions into the transportation system, right? They haven't really changed the foundation, the structural aspects of transportation. They just added some new technologies to the system. Whereas when you go back to, you know, the early 20th century, um, you start to see the transformation of cities for the automobile. And that is like a real disruption, right? When you think about mm-hmm. technology altering the way that systems work, um, the real remaking of cities, communities, the transportation system to pave the way um, quite literally for the automobile to take over is really notable and, and kind of shocking when you really look at the degree of transformation that happened, the opposition that existed to that, because I feel like kind of the story that we get today is it was just kind of natural that this was going to happen, right? That the automobile was going to roll out because it was invented and it was going to take over. But actually, when we look back at that history, we can see it was very contested. It was very political. And the reason that these changes were made in order to allow the automobile to roll out were because governments got on board with the desires of, you know, the automotive industry in order to remake cities for the car, right? Um, It wasn't just because, oh, everyone loved cars so much and wanted to buy one. And so everything changed, right? Mm. Um, It was very much, you know, creating the demand for a product that they wanted to sell that locks us in later to the dependence on the automobile as communities start to be built. So you can only get around with a car or only reliably with a car. Um, And so the book, you know, looks back at that history to see how the automobile rolled out, in particular in the United States, because that is the place where it does so, you know, in the most entrenched example, in the most obvious example. And then also it looks at the history of the tech industry, um, because, you know, that is where Silicon Valley is. So it looks at the kind of American history of the development of technology, where this industry comes from, the degree it relies on public funding and, and the ideas that kind of, you know, uh, help to propel these solutions. Then, you know, the book really digs into various ideas that the tech industry has put forward for solving the problems with the transportation system, electric cars, ride hailing services, uh, autonomous vehicles, and a bunch of other, you know, stupid ideas, I would say, um, and really digs into the promises that were made about them and how they've been unable to really fulfill those promises um, in actually solving the serious problems that people do have with the transportation system, whether it's access to transportation, um, the deaths that happen on the roads, the amount of time people are people are stuck in traffic and various other issues. Um, and then, you know, the book, because it is, you know, a left wing book that is criticizing these things also yeah. lays out kind of a vision for how transportation could be better if we invested more in, in collective alternatives and allowing people to get out of cars. So that's kind of mm. the, the short version of it. Mm. Somewhat short. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's like a lot in there. Phoebe, were you going to say something? I just like. Uh, no, it was just it was just like, honestly, like it's uh, it's just a kind of just a thought that I had while um, while Paris was talking and it's just an interjection it's nothing to do with necessarily with what we're talking about it's just a kind of general observation about the idea of like the idea of disruption like as a kind of semantic mm. concept and I feel like it doesn't get I mean it definitely gets like criticized by a certain kind of person but it often gets sort of repeated very uncritically and I just what I think is so interesting is that kind of bound up in the idea of disruption is like the, is the recognition that the way things are set up at the moment are just absolutely antagonistic to the continuation of like decent global human life. Like that's just that 
that, that there's the acknowledgement there. But they can't call it revolution because they have to come up with something which they're likely to survive. So they have to call it something else. And it's this kind of like kind of cutesy little word, um, which basically just means like revolution, but like, please don't kill me and my rich friends. And I just think that's very funny. <laughs> it's also like, the recognition that things aren't working out well and that things need to be fixed. But then using that recognition and that observation that people have in order to like further entrench really like terrible capital solutions that don't solve them at all and actually mm. make things worse. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's just, it's cute. It's cute. I like it. <laughs> Paris, you touched on this when you were doing the summary just now. Um, but I like, so, but as like a very basic and kind of, I know, just like even just like a dumb guy question. And this is actually based on the fact that while I, I had to do like a long drive uh, this weekend and I have so recently I well, like I'd changed my car last year in order to sort of abide by the um, emission zone rules in London now, which is fair enough. But when I was when my wife and I were buying a car, um, what we found was that a lot of the, the sort of newer vehicles, they were all these kind of different versions of like your smart cars. Right. Like and, you know, just by the fact that they sort of had a screen and that screen was like both. Um, you know, is is this weird hybrid of like a surveillance tool uh, or a, a surveillance kit, uh, something that tells you that like your car has a problem but doesn't tell you what it has a problem exactly? Um, and also mostly an entertainment machine, which kind of means that an an entertainment system with like its own mind. So even if you were just trying to like, in our case, we were just trying to get some directions to like figure out uh what exit to take on like the motorway, and the car kept like playing um because it has like apple what you call like apple music it kept playing u2 like one u2 song that's been like <laughs> downloaded into the car and, like and like my wife was like we was desperately trying to figure out how do i get this u2 song like off um and we, and we just could not work it out like they've not you know, only added the u2 album to every phone and ipad and <laughs> apple device but into your cars now too right. and like i was generally worried that if i tried to sort it out you know i can't drive and try to figure out this yeah. thing but like there have definitely been like cases where people have gotten into accidents because like they've been paying too much attention to the screen in their car mm -hmm. which basically controls like the way that their car moves and with some of the teslas like you know there was that tweet i think a couple of months ago maybe we talked about on this show where a guy was like yeah i my you know uh my the screen on my car like it got stuck in landscape mode so it just kept playing this film and i didn't know how to get so i had to like stop on the side of the road and like then my car wasn't working and all i could do is watch this film and i couldn't do anything until the film finished i don't know whether that's exactly how it went but like it was definitely to do with the fact that like the the, the screen just wouldn't move from landscape mode and like there was nothing you could do about it um, and I guess like, this is I the sort of, future yeah. where the companies just play ads before you can change any features on the car <laughs> yeah, and you just need to sit there and wait. <laughs> yeah, basically. And those ads are all, all like whatever fucking U2 song I had to listen yeah. to like for an hour <laughs> on, the, on the right. Um, but I guess like it, I, like it brought this kind of question on, which was like, okay, I understand. I think like having a GPS system built into a car is like generally a good thing. And I think like, I don't, I'm not someone who's just like, yeah, you know, cars should, they should. They shouldn't have like, you know, these kind of things at all, because I think they can be really useful for people, including and especially people like me who are not particularly good drivers. But why, like, how have we gotten to this point now where like the, you know, the systems inside these cars are not just like things to help you drive a bit better or to make that drive easier or more comfortable. They have, you know, they've had to sort of turn into these like basically living inside a computer. And what have the implications been in terms of both how cars are designed, but also just like how 
infrastructure like even roads and other forms of like infrastructure for automobiles how they're designed as well yeah i think it's a really good and a really important question and it's one that i don't actually get into so much in the book like you know i look at these grander ideas but not these sort of more nuanced ways that the technologies are working themselves Mm -hmm. into the cars and one of the things that i often say about the tech industry's kind of proposals for transportation is it's not so much to disrupt the transportation system in the way that they would suggest to really kind of overturn things, but rather they see that, you know, the transportation system as it exists today has been very profitable for particular interests, whether it's auto companies, oil companies, you know, suppliers to the auto companies, things like that, um, garages, what have you. And they want to, you know, insert themselves into that relationship so that they can start to extract some profit from it as well, right? Mm. And so I think that that's an important way to understand the approach of tech companies to transportation and to the automobile in particular. And so what we see with the automobile is that more and more digital technology and internet connectivity has been added to it over the past decade or so. Um, And so, you know, the cars themselves now are often connected to the internet or like, you know, through the, through the mobile networks or satellites or what have you. Um, They have a ton of these, these features on them, these apps, you know, the, the kind of growing um, digital service, like, you know, the touchscreens essentially that are, that are on the, the, the cars, they are collecting more data on what you do in the car and they are sending that data to the various companies that own them or that they have relationships with. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I think that the piece of there are a few pieces of it that are concerning. But I think if you're talking about, you know, the touch screens and, and the digital entertainment systems that are in the car, um, Tesla is the one that really kind of pioneered these large touch screens that even remove a lot of the knobs for changing, you know, uh, changing the music or, or adjusting the, the temperature or what have you um, and putting that all into into the touch screen. Right. And the argument with these systems was that if you put more and more of the functionality within these touchscreens in the cars, it's going to make people less distracted because they won't be looking at their phone so much. Mm. Um, but studies increasingly show that actually these you know, large screens in the cars are making people more distracted. And as they're moving more and more functionality into the screen, um, that's making it more difficult for people to pay attention on the road because, mm. you know, if they need to adjust the temperature now, they don't have any tactile feedback. They just need to use the screen in order to make the changes, right? Yeah. And so I see that as you know, there was this promise that autonomous vehicles were going to be ready by now, right? They were going to be rolled out. We were all going to be in these little robo taxis. Um, And then it was clear that they really overestimated the ability to advance that technology. However, we've still seen the changes in the designs of the cars so that more and more um, is put into these big screens. The screens are getting larger and they are kind of treated almost as entertainment devices, even though we have not succeeded in developing the autonomous driving technology to actually let us not pay attention to the road. Right. And that that then makes driving more dangerous. Mm. Yeah. Do you think part of like part of this as like a kind of as as a, like as a sort of technique is to uh, is to kind of create an entire sort of industry which is like adjacent to these cars? So it's like so it's like a kind so it's like a way of kind of like diversifying your business output because it means that like only certain kinds of people are going to be able to fix them as well. So it's a kind of so it's again it's this like it's this kind of standard tech industry job creation stuff it's like yeah but you've created a bunch of jobs to fix the things that are bullshit in your car like that's 
that's not job creation. That's like, that's like, I, I don't know what it, I don't know what it is. I can't think of, <laughs> I, can't, I can't think of, I can't think of a good non-suable term for it, but. Yeah, well, <laughs> one, of, one of the things that I worry about, like in relation to it is, you know, I think it's pretty well known now that Tesla has severe quality issues in the construction mm. of their vehicles, mm. right? Um, they're known for, for having terrible kind of build quality. Um, and one of the things that came out a few years ago is that, um, Tesla and, and Elon Musk made the choice to use these screens in the cars that were not made for automotive use, right? And so that mm. they wouldn't actually hold up to long-term use of the car and would tend to fail after a few years and have to be replaced. Um, and so adding more of these technologies into the car um, adds more points of failure for the car mm. itself. Um, that can mess up the driving experience that can cause it to need maintenance more often. Um, and the parts themselves can not hold up to the driving conditions mm. um, that that people actually experience or, you know, the, the ways that people drive. And that can mean issues for the cars as well. And then the other piece of this, you know, you talked about building an industry alongside the car or finding new ways to kind of pull profit from the car um, instead of getting people out of cars, of course, because, mm. you know, automobility is very profitable. That's part of the reason why it's dominated so much of the transportation system. You know, when you force everyone to buy a car, pay for insurance, pay for maintenance, pay for gas or what have you, there are many other ways that people profit from that single purchase and from forcing people to rely on cars that mm. now the tech industry is entering and finding new ways for it to extract profit from the car so it gets the data on where you drive on how you drive on how you use the various systems and then that data can be sold to insurance companies to you know anyone else who who wants whatever kind of travel data and things like that yeah. and so there's a whole kind of profitable industry that's being built around it as more digital technologies are integrated into the car with built-in obsolescence yeah. <laughs> as well. Totally. Which is, which is very funny for this guy who is like presented to like most people, like if you don't spend a lot of time thinking about this, completely uncritically as like the environment guy. And so much of this is like, it's absolutely relying on like the, uh, on like the, on the planned obsolescence. And like, I bet like, I bet you can't like take these parts, like these cars apart yourself. Like even just like honestly, just like thinking about the thing about the screen, because I'm like an inveterate like prodder and dabber. Um, like if there was a big glowing screen next to my steering wheel, like I would not be able to stop myself from like from like <laughs> okay, so poking and dabbing seat. at it. Yeah, like well, you're or, just, in the back or just or just no, not, you too, <laughs> or just not buying a Tesla because yeah, yeah. Because presumably because they Tesla did it, now more and more car makers yeah, are. That, yeah, no, yeah no, this no, is the other thing. Right, like, yeah. So when we were looking for cars, like I like one of the criteria that I had was like I would I don't want like a massive screen. Like if I have yeah. to have a screen on like a car that was built after like 2012 or whatever, ideally I would like it to be as small as possible. And like we did get one with like a relatively small screen that didn't have that many features. But like even then, it's like too much and like you also don't really have because like when it updates like yeah you don't really have control over that um especially when it does like the auto update which a lot of the new cars do as well um and i don't want to go too much into like the specifics of that but what i was actually thinking about when you were explaining about like the kind of design like that sort of replaceability and like kind of constantly sort of going through those cars is sort of built into at least kind of like the tesla system and I wouldn't be surprised if like other car manufacturers kind of envisioned it in the same way. It's not like, you know, the obvious example, the obvious like parallel would be like to cell phones. Um, and like the fact that like, you know, 
uh, iPhones are not kind of built or like even Android phones are not built to sort of like have for a long time. But like the economy around it actually is not that dissimilar from like social media platforms, right? Where like the value it's presented or at least kind of like the marketing is very much still we're connecting people like from all around the world together and we're making the world a better place because of like the exchange of ideas and communications and relationships or like the actual value of these platforms that don't really do that type of stuff anymore is actually just like how much it can extract from users who's like as they spend more time on it and more importantly when they're sort of forced to spend more time on it and like the thing about and I, and this sort of takes me to my next question about like silicon valley's obsession with cars generally and like their con- kind of continued hostility towards public transportation systems um you know when kind of like put together with the idea that like automated vehicles are like either very, very unlikely to happen or like were never sort of intended to be there in the first place. But they still have like, I wonder whether uh, like automobile companies then have to sort of still present like the marketing around the idea that like, yeah, you know, cars are sort of the key to progress and cars are the key to like modern societies and modernity as a whole. So, you know, you still have to keep believing in us and keep believing in the idea that like connectivity through cars and, you know, that's kind of the stuff that's important. And therefore, this technology that we keep introducing into these cars are essential to sort of like maintaining that goal. And because so much of like public infrastructure is built around and to accommodate those types of automobile companies, including on a policy level, that we now find ourselves actually in a very similar position to like with, you know, to one with phones where it's like, I don't, you know, the optimism around phones and their kind of like social connectivity, I don't think is necessarily as widespread anymore. But we sort of have to deal with a world where it's like, well, actually, it's really difficult to like have a brick phone with you, or it's really difficult to like use a flip phone, like beyond very basic things. So we have to sort of figure out like how to navigate this world, even if it's with this technology that we have very little control over. I wonder like whether we're sort of seeing the same thing happening in relation to like smart cars, uh, EV cars, and like just kind of you know, I I want, I, and again, like whether it sort of couples with like a kind of pessimism about whether public infrastructure or like public transport infrastructure will ever kind of realistically be built. Yeah. So I think there's a few things there and, and I think it's a good question. Um, so if we're thinking about the tech industry, um, you know, think about the types of people who are in that industry, think about the types of environments that it's existing in, right? A lot of the tech industry is still quite in like suburban parts of the Bay Area, especially, you know, the larger tech companies, right? They're used to this kind of suburban environment where you'd be driving everywhere. And also a lot of the people who are going into the tech industry, especially, you know, before, like, especially like a decade ago, um, and the people who would be coming up with these ideas and pushing these ideas forward tended to be, you know, white men of, of you know, a pretty decent, at least middle class, if not uh, higher than that background, right? So they had a particular experience of the world, a particular experience of often driving and probably liking cars as well. Yeah. Like if you think of someone like Elon Musk, for example, um, you know, he even, he even, he didn't start a car company, he took one over. Um, But that history also tends to get rewritten because of how he's presented it over time. Um, But so these are like a lot of people who, you know, are, are 
interested in the automobile, who tend to get around in the automobile, who wouldn't want to take public transit themselves, especially if you think about, you know, they they grow up in American cities where public transit is underfunded, is seen as how poor people get around and 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 whatnot, right? Um, and so, you know, when they think about how they would fix the transportation system and they think about their particular experience with the transportation system. It's how do we fix the automobile or the problems with the automobile? And since they are kind of of a more libertarian techno deterministic bent, their approach to the problem is not, we need to address the politics of transportation um, that have made the system the way it is today, but rather how can we invent a new technology that is going to solve these problems with the automobile, with transportation, um, and not even going so far as to think that maybe some of these problems are just inherent to the kind of mass reliance or mass use of automobiles in the way that exists today, right? Where most people are reliant on them. And so as a result, most people are stuck in traffic because the the geometry of that just doesn't work, right? There's not enough space for all those vehicles. Sure. And so that is not something that they can think about. But to your point on you know, the, the response to that, I think that that is the way that the tech companies respond. But then if you think about how, you know, other people respond, how governments respond, I think that that is an issue, right? Because we are several decades into the neoliberal experiment of hollowing out governments of, you know, reducing their capacity. Um, and so if you look at, you know, one of the things that was really important to me for the book was to go back and look at how the automobile took over, right? And as I said, that wasn't because the technology was invented and then everything was remade, but rather because the government, you know, was kind of in cahoots with the automakers. And then they decided to, you know, to make investments, to change policies, regulations and whatnot, to encourage automobility, to build out the road network and the highway system and all those sorts of things to really change society, right? And so today, if we were going to have those kind of structural changes again, that would get people out of cars and make it more reasonable and accessible for people to take transit or cycle or or get around in various different ways. First and foremost, you need the government to step in and actually, you know, take the actions, make the political decisions that are going to enable those choices to be made by individuals. And so then I think it's completely reasonable then for average people to look at the state of the transport system and say, well, you know, I'm going to have to get an electric car or hopefully these technologies work out because Mm. this is just what we're stuck with. And obviously the government's not stepping in to change anything or make it better for people to get around in a different way. You know, maybe it's a bit different in your case. They built a whole Elizabeth line for you, but you know, not everyone gets that. For me specifically, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, yeah, Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm just trying to process it all. I think yeah. I, what, one one thing one thing that like you, I was also just thinking about how the sort of like rise in kind of like services around or like where sort of the automobile kind of like is central to like I and I don't know the big the percentage in terms of like how it contributes to the economy, but like I guess somewhere like San Francisco, where I think as we mentioned at the top of the show, you have these services like gorillas and uber and like all these other types of rideshare services or like delivery services that like make up so much of like economic life in most places and i wonder like how much this has kind of been used by people who manufacture smart cars and manufacture these types of like um uh these like tech systems inside those cars to sort of like justify their existence 
um, and how because of this kind of like, as you mentioned, like the hollowing out of like the state and kind of you know the uh, the consequences of you know uh, neoliberal government kind of means that by sort of like trying to talk seriously about the elimination of like so many like ill of inf infrastructure that prioritizes cars or at least trying to minimize like the harms that it causes on an environmental and social level or even even like entertaining the idea that like yeah we should have a few more like you know high speed trains are really good and like you know we should have a few more of them at the very least i wonder how much of like uh the sort of economy around ride sharing and like uh the gig economy automobile like sort of reinforces uh, the existence of those services, I guess, in the way where it's like, well, these guys have created the economy that we now live in, and so talking about eliminating them really does mean that we we also have to like rethink how we live as a society and like what our economic priorities are, and that's like a project that like no one is really willing to kind of like be like take like have no one really has the political will to um to to like examine or entertain. I don't know if that makes any sense, but. No, uh, like it's completely right, you know, because the way that we have structured the transportation system and our communities has shaped the way that we live, the the way that the economy works, you know, the way that services are delivered to us. Um, and so that's exactly right. And one of the things that I think stands out to me about like ride hailing services, for example, is that they emerge and they promise to, you know, solve a lot of the problems with the transportation system. They're going to reduce car ownership, solve traffic because it's going to make it more efficient for all these cars to get around. It's going to be better for the environment because, you know, people aren't going to be driving their own cars as much. It's going to be more accessible for people because it's it's cheaper, more affordable, more efficient. Um, and, and all these sorts of supposed benefits that are going to come with it. And then a few years later, you know, independent academics are able to, you know, actually see what the consequence of Uber and, and these ride hailing systems were. And it was basically the complete opposite of what they promised, right? It, it did nothing to car ownership. It made traffic worse. It was worse for the environment, you know, produced more emissions, tended to serve young college educated people with above average incomes in cities. I tend to note that's like your typical tech worker in many ways. Um, and it was also found not to complement transit systems, but to take people away from transit systems, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think that they, that, you know, ride hailing services emerge at a moment when we're starting to have the conversation about how we're going to address the problems with the transportation system, but also the contribution of the transportation system to climate change, right? Um, and they arrive and they say, look, we are going to produce all of these great benefits, still using the car, still using the traditional infrastructure, just with a new technology that's added to coordinate how these cars get around. And then as a result, you know, you don't need to make the difficult investments in transit infrastructure or these more structural changes to the system because we are going to solve the problem with this new technology. And this is the case with many of these, you know, supposed solutions to transportation and the problems of transportation is, you know, we just have this new technology, this will solve the problem. And this um, allows you, the political class that doesn't actually want to do anything to step back and say, look, you know, the tech companies have solved it. So now we don't need to build yeah. the new tram line or improve the bus system or what have you, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So, like, I do. I'm. I'm trying to like be a better person and, um, you know, uh, be more optimistic at least with like endings because you know cynicism is uh <laughs> cynicism is a young man's game. 
Um, but also, like, as you mentioned, uh, like you have like there's a section in towards the end of your book where you sort of like map out some potential solutions uh, that like, you know, should be paid more attention to whether you're like an activist or whether you kind of like are on left sides of you know politics and stuff. I wondered whether you could kind of just like talk about some of those, like some of the futures or like some of the potential futures that you envision. And um, yeah, there's like things that maybe like people who are uh, who want to see a future with more public transport and more like high speed rail, like what what they could potentially be doing. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I think that there are a few key pieces of this, right? Like if we're going to solve the problems that exist in the transportation system today, um, I think that really requires for you know us to basically force the government to step up and make the investments that are necessary to make that happen instead of just hoping that tech companies will invent some magical technology that's going to fix it all for us, right? And so mm-hmm. what we really need to see then is greater investments in the transit system in order to make it more reliable, more frequent, more affordable for people so that they can use it um, so that those services are are better for people, more accessible, available in more places, you know, especially in places that are more um, rural where these things are, are less accessible right now, even suburban. Um, and also to make the investments in cycling infrastructure so people can feel safe mm. riding a bike so that people know that they can um, store their bike when they go somewhere and it's not going to get stolen or taken or what have you. Um, but also think about the ways that communities are built um, so that, you know, the, the services and things that people rely on tend to be closer to where they live so that they don't need to travel such far distances to reach them, right? Mm-hmm. And so yeah. I think that those are some important things if we think about the city itself. We also need to think about how people get between cities to ensure that there's better access to rail service, more reliable rail service, cheaper and affordable rail service, of course, something that's a real issue over in the UK. Um and also Sorry. investing in, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and also like Sorry. investing in, yeah, in in high speed rail, you know, mm. on the corridors where it makes sense, in order to encourage people to use rail instead of short haul flights and things like that, in order to get around to reduce those emissions, right? Mm. Um, yeah. And then the other piece of that that I think is really important to note is that it's never just about the transportation system, right? Like if we just look at the transportation system and we make investments in transit and, you know, in cycling infrastructure and what have you, that's really great for the people who can live next to it. But when we have a private housing system, that tends to cause rents and and home prices to go up surrounding that infrastructure. And so then some of the people who would most benefit from it would get pushed away from it into areas that don't have such good service yet again, right? Um, Mm. And so that really requires us to think not just about the transportation system, but about the, the various urban systems, the way that we approach, you know, our, our cities, housing, all these sorts of things more generally mm-hmm. um, to ensure that we're actually building communities that people can live in, that provide what people need um, in order to have a good life uh, yeah. instead of just doing whatever, you know, makes the most profits for some particular companies that have a lot of power and influence in, in the, mm-hmm. the moment. Yeah. Yeah. It was like, yeah, it was a, like, Agree all things I agree with, and all uh, that's the most important. Good good and positive way, like way to end. I think, yeah, yeah, and I think like those are kind of like very, yeah, like nothing disagreeable there. And uh, I will support anything that like extends high speed rail because it's very good, and you should like try it sometime. Yeah, Um, (laughs) I do have a story. Like I won't say it, but like yeah, America, American friend who did try the Elizabeth line uh, the other day, and like has not stopped texting me about it for like a week. (laughs) um so if you really want to impress like an american like just put them on a train like they're genuinely very impressed by them 
Um, and on that note, let, we should uh, end the show. So Paris, thank you so much for coming back on uh, and uh, spending some time with us. Uh, your, the link to your book will be in the show notes, but if people want to follow your work and what you do, and including actually your good podcast, who like, but I didn't mention at the start of the show, and I'm very sorry about that. Um, <laughs> how can they do that? It's completely okay. Um, you know, I'm on Twitter at Paris Marks. Um, I tweet too much, uh, which I think is common for all of us. Um, and yeah, they can find the podcast anywhere. You know, they listen to podcasts. It's called Tech Won't Save Us. I'm sure anywhere they find your podcast, they can find mine there too. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I yeah, feel like I, you're, I, yeah, you're actually recommended. So when people like scroll right to the bottom of... Uh, of our Apple thing, and they're like podcasts like this. It's yeah, uh, I think yours comes up. Yeah, yeah, so, we're, we're, we we get bundled together. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, but we'll add the links to all those in the show notes as well. Uh, thank you so much once again for listening to this free episode. Uh, just a reminder that you can uh, find lots of bonus content on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash 10k post podcast. Uh, Phoebe, do you want to plug anything before we head out? Sure. Um, if you would like to listen to me and Milo's Seinfeld podcast, you can. It's Masters of Our Domain and you can follow it on Twitter at Masters of Pod. This show is produced by Devon. You can follow them at Devon underscore on Earth and you can also listen to their podcast, which is called Kill James Bond. Uh, it's very, very good as well. Um, so on that note, uh, we'll close it out. So uh, until next time, we'll catch you later. Have a good one. Bye. Bye.